I don't think it got weird. I think it just got. No, it got weird. weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there's a bit with a naked guy walking down the hall behind an animated pig. So that's kind of. That's perfect. Perfectly normal. That was weird. <laughs> that's yeah. That's definitely weird. It feels so long as well. It feels really, really long. It feels like two, three hours, not just over two hours. It's about two hours, 14 minutes. Yeah, it feels longer than that. It did come to life. Like, there are four brilliant actors. I love all four actors. So it was great to see them in that form. And then he wasted them. Hey, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Flix Watcher Podcast. Today, I'm joined by John. Hello there. Nicola. Hello. And Helen. Hi. And we are all thinking of ending things. Oh, sorry, that's the film we're talking about. We're talking about I'm thinking of ending things. Thank you, as always, to the mighty people for the mighty, mighty tunes. And thanks to Ben from Rockwood Audio for his awesome editing skills. Please do remember to write a review and rate us on Apple Podcasts anywhere you can do where you listen to the podcast because it really does help us. And you can join in the conversation with us on Twitter at FlixWatcherPod and on Instagram at FlixWatcher. Hello, film fans. Welcome to Flix Watcher Podcast. Our guests today are Nicola and John. Over to you, please, John. Say hello to our listeners and tell them a little bit more about who you are and what do you do, please? Hello, listeners. My name is John Loftus. I host the STEM Inspirations Podcast. I also present a radio show on 8radio.com and I can also be found writing about music and movies on goldenpleck.com. So what can you tell us a bit about the podcast and... Do you have to get to choose what film, what music and, and movies you, you talk about, or is it just kind of thrown at you? Yeah, so the, but the podcast is a science-based podcast. It's based out of a young scientist exhibition that's been running for 60 years now. Wow. And I get to talk to loads of interesting... And where is that so people can potentially visit if they're in the area? That is in Dublin. So it'll be in Dublin next January. So there'll be 550 projects on show and we have some great special guests come over and join us and do shows uh, as part of that as well. And on the podcast, I get to talk to loads of interesting people in the world of science and students that have taken part in the Young Scientist exhibition and gone on and set up companies. So our most famous alumni from the exhibition would be Patrick Collison, who went on and formed Stripe which you oh, probably yeah, yeah. use every day if you're making credit card payments. That is somebody who won the Young Scientist uh, a number of years ago. And he's also from my home city in Limerick on the west coast of Ireland. So we're very proud of him. Does he buy the drinks now, though? I know it's worth billions. <laughs> uh, hard to squeeze a penny out of those lads. That's why they're billionaires. <laughs> <laughs> they're just thinking about transaction fees and it all goes, yeah, they, don't want to, they don't want to transact with exactly. you. Exactly, yeah. When it comes to music and movies, both on my radio show and on the music blog I'm thankfully can pick what I can review and talk about which is and play which is great and that begs a question do you have a specific genre era of film and music that you choose or not particularly I do focus on up and coming Irish music so the likes of Fontaine's DC probably would be the, probably one of the most famous bands that have broken big both in the UK and worldwide there currently on tour with Arctic Monkeys. I saw them back when in Limerick with 25 other people. They're now playing stadiums to 30, 40,000 people. So oh. it's, uh, it's great to see those guys and the journey they've been on. Absolutely. Nicola, who are you? 
Hello, you're Nicola. Hello, I'm Nicola. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm Nicola Millard. By day, I am a psychologist, technologist and futurologist. So I present, I write and I research about all sorts of things around people-centred technology. So yeah, I was officially a futurologist for a while, which always begs the question, do I have a crystal ball? The answer is yes, I do. I saw no future in it though. So frankly, it's a very silly job title. That's by day. So I always say I, I don't have a podcast. I feel very kind of deprived. I'm a pop tart, really. I go on other people's podcasts, really, normally talking about worky things. So I'm normally talking about things like um, hybrid working and the future of work and lots of exciting things like that. But by night, uh, I spend a lot of time in very darkened rooms, mostly at the cinema. But I also am a bit of a theatre addict as well. And John and I kind of... We work for the same company, so we bonded, I guess, many years ago over conversations around cinema and and music. I also am a big Irish music fan, so John's recent recommendation that I took up was C-Matt, who is an incredible uh, Irish country artist who is definitely worth checking out if you want to have a good laugh as well as a good listen. Oh, fantastic. But we're here talking about films, which is, well, obviously this is the podcast. Um, You've chosen, I'm thinking of ending things, Nicola. Can you tell us first of all why you chose it? (laughs) Already you're grimacing. I think this could be quite an interesting conversation. But we should preface this by, we've had a couple of Charlie Kaufmans, whether directed or written by Charlie Kaufman in this podcast. So you may well be amongst friends. But can you tell us why you chose it and give us a synopsis in 60 seconds or less. I'll give you, when you get ready for the synopsis, I'll get the timer up. Yeah, that's going to be the challenge, isn't it? I guess the first reason I chose it, there are a few. The first reason I chose it, it was the reason I got Netflix. I must confess, I do spend most of my time in the cinema. I'm not a huge streamer. That means you're quite late to Netflix then. I was very late to Netflix, in fact. Yes, so (laughs) very recent. And it sort of coincided with lockdown as well. And when I was really missing the cinema. So I got Netflix largely because I am a very big Charlie Kaufman fan. But I'd also read the book, oddly enough, a couple of years before. So the Ian Reid novel, very short book, actually, if you want to just quick read. And I thought when I read the book, there's no way they're ever going to film this. And then they announced Charlie Kaufman was doing it. And I I was kind of, well, of course, Charlie Kaufman's doing it because it's an unfilmable book all about kind of the inner psyche and depression and ageing. And, you know, who else could do it, frankly, Charlie Kaufman? So, I mean, I admire him hugely. He is, I think, one of the most inventive screenwriters whether he's as good as a director, I think we could probably debate, but certainly being John Malkovich is probably my favourite of his, but probably his best is Eternal Sunshine, which of course he also got the Oscar for. But So I, I like his films. I, I like quirkiness in film. Then I, I'm a psychologist by background, so I think it's really interesting to see how he articulates those inner monologues. And yeah, I, I, that's why I can get dangerously geeky about this film, because I think there's a lot of really meaty psychological stuff in there, which we might get into. You, feel free to shut me up if I go too far. But I think the final thing is I, as John know, knows, I'm a very big Jessie Buckley fan. I think she is a fierce talent. I mean, I think she's a, she's a extremely fairly talented, talented, isn't she? So talented. Yeah. She's amazing. <laughs> yeah. She, I mean, I think she makes some very eccentric choices in the films that she does, but she's always, even if the film isn't 100% perfect, I think she kind of elevates the film, whatever she's in. So, yeah. We spoke about her in The Lost Daughter. Oh, yeah. She played the younger version of Olivia Colman, both like two stunning actors. It's just like, well, why not? Absolutely. Both of them smashed out of the park and both of them did each other justice, I think, yeah. So yeah. I'm going to get the timer up and then you have 60 seconds or less. You can take less time if you want to, to give us the synopsis. And the timer starts now. 
This is such a difficult one to synopsize. So it's a road trip movie, really, with probably the emphasis on the trip. So Jessie Buckley plays a young woman who might be called Lucy or Lucia or Louisa or Yvonne or possibly even Amy, who hops in a car with her newish boyfriend, um, played by Jesse Plemons, to meet his parents, who are played in a marvellously demented manner by the <laughs> fabulous Tony Collette and David Tulis. So as the snowstorm around them closes in, we start to wonder... Well, who exactly is thinking of ending things? And we also realise that Jake might not be an entirely stable state of mind. Except, of course, it's not about any of that. It's actually probably about a suicidal school janitor hallucinating about ageing, loneliness, regret, bad 70s wallpaper, maggoty pigs and Oklahoma. That's that's, that's probably that's it. Great. <laughs> Those are some key talking points. So before we started recording, uh, Nicola, you said... It might, did you say it might end up in arguments? I'm looking at John here. Where do you sit on the Charlie Kaufman of it all generally? And give us your initial top line thoughts in this film, John. Right. So Charlie Kaufman, I think you summed it up brilliantly there, Nicola, in terms of he is a very good writer. Whether he is a great director now is definitely open to discussion. I love Eternal Sunshine, The Spotless Mind. Absolutely adore that. And being John, John Malkovich is just shy of his very, very highest quality. But as a director, I, I think he's undisciplined. And I think the likes of uh, Michel Gondry and Spike Jones, who works with superbly, I think they, I won't say they rope him in, but they certainly put a little bit more structure and a little bit more shape to his wonderful ideas. Uh, and he has definitely got loads of those. But as a director, I definitely, I, I don't think I've warmed to any of his, the films that he's he's directed, but those films that he's written, you know, it, like they, they're quirky. I love quirky. I love things that, that challenge your brain. I love things that go all over the place. But this one definitely tested me for sure. So there's only been a handful of his directorial films. So we've got uh, Synecdoche, Anomalisa, which is a strange film for different reasons anyway. And then I'm thinking about anything. So I don't know, is that enough to form a pattern there for his director style, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think existential angst um, is definitely a theme. I mean, I think he does, a lot of his films are about the creative process. This one isn't, actually. So, I mean, Synecdoche would be a good example of a theatre director who's very clearly, again, having a slight mental breakdown. So I think, you know, mental health is actually definitely one of his things. It's actually quite interesting. I've listened to quite a few interviews with him over the years, and I hadn't realised until recently that his production company is called Projective Testing Services. Now, if you're a psychologist, you'll get that joke. A projective test, the best example of a projective test would be the Rorschach inkblot test. So they're deliberately designed to be ambiguous. And I think that's the in-joke with him. All of his films are deliberately designed to be interpreted in very different ways by each and every member of the audience. And he doesn't mind that. And that's why, actually, I think he doesn't like doing interviews as well, because he doesn't People really want to, to explain him himself. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think that's why I like him, because there's no one answer and he challenges his audience. But then the flip side of that is you really do have to pay attention. And I think one of the reasons why I tend to go to the cinema to see a lot of films is it's very easy to be distracted when you're streaming at home. So I think this one challenges you to switch off the mobile phone and you know, try not to get the dog coming in and children or, or anyone else to try and interrupt you because otherwise you've got to go back and start again almost. <laughs> I think you're showing your hand towards the engagement score here. Helen, Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind is our great white whale in terms of films for you certainly that we want to have on here. And it comes onto Netflix for like a period of time. 
just enough time for someone to pick it and then gets kicked off of the platform. And we only record films as they are on Netflix. So we've, we've just been, we've just been shy of recording it a few times. But it's fair to say, like, his, well, his written side of things. Yeah. I mean, we've also had Adaptation on and Being John Malkovich, which, yeah, we enjoy them. I would say they are generally quite warm films. There's a lot of heart in there. There's a lot of emotions. And yeah, I, I agree with everything that's kind of been said as him as a director, whereas this feels kind of cold and very detached in comparison to those. So I saw this when it came onto Netflix and was quite excited about it because I love love the two Jesses, obviously. But previous Kaufman has been good, but this was a thoroughly frustrating and irritating experience. Oh, really? Yeah. And <laughs> I thought, you know, I was like, oh, am I going to watch it again? I thought, you know what? Someone's picked it, so they've obviously got some like strong reasons why they picked it. So I'm going to give it another go. And man, oh my God, I was irritated as soon as it started. And I don't know, I just didn't get on with this at all. And it commits, which I'd forgotten, commits like the ultimate sin. There's interpretive dance at the end. Like maybe I would have forgiven. <laughs> Is that the ultimate sin? Forgiven well, lots of things. Yeah. And then, and it's not even Jesse Buckley dancing and she's a great performer it's someone else so it's like oh but she she can dance why not use her so yeah anyway not even the great tony collette could save this for me unfortunately and i, I did try this second time but yeah it's just and it's just so boring as well i mean i didn't find it's it boring boring never boring i didn't find it boring but i thought yeah i wasn't i wasn't with the the dance bit at the end that kind of came out left it's, field didn't really do anything to the story apart from make you think why are we doing this? Sorry. <laughs> it, it's really weird because I hated that ending. I've seen this probably about six times now and I hated that ending for probably the first four. And it's very different to the book's ending. The book's ending is far more sinister and it's much more a creeping horror actually in, in the book. Whereas I kind of objected to Kaufman suddenly absolutely going into a song and dance number and particularly the song at the end, <laughs> Jesse Plement singing, you're thinking... Jessie Buckley's got an amazing singing voice. Why don't get her up on stage? And you're right, dancing as well. I saw her in Cabaret. She was astonishing. But I actually changed my mind because I went to see, I don't know if you've seen the very dark production of Oklahoma that's on in, in London at the moment, the Daniel yeah. Fish production. You always think of Oklahoma as a, as a kind of bright, Oh, ten, what a like beautiful a morning looking, yeah. time, you know, really upbeat and it's not. And that production, the Daniel Fish production is very downbeat and very sinister. And the song that they've picked is actually about, it's the Judd Fry song. And Judd Fry is the sinister kind of baddie of Oklahoma. He's a loner. So obviously, you know, he's kind of Jake. So he's a loner. He's an outsider. He's got a crush on a girl that he hasn't got the courage to talk to. And then uh, Curly, who obviously is the, the hero of the piece, basically says, why don't you commit suicide? Because you're useless. And then, of course, he goes and tries to, to seduce this girl and he ends up getting stabbed and dies. And all of this kind of plays out in something that you kind of, you remember as a very upbeat musical, but actually it's incredibly dark and the Daniel Fish production really emphasises that. So I think when I saw that last 20 minutes this time, I was kind of, actually, I get this now. I think it's the wrong ending, but I get why <laughs> Cawthon put it in. <laughs> so it's tying in with Oklahoma, the, the, at least the story beats and themes. Of yeah, it. and you, yeah. like most things in the film, it's seeded. So there's, there's Oklahoma being rehearsed in the school. You hear it on the radio. That's why I like this. That's why I've seen it five or six times. You just pick up on these little clues that he leaves you all the way through as to actually the fact that this is playing out, spoilers, 
entirely in Jake's mind. And I'm going to get a little bit psychological here because I think it ties in with a Jungian theory called the shadow self. And normally the shadow self is your repressed self. So it might be the self that's having suicidal thoughts, but it's it's repressed. You don't, you, you kind of tuck it away. And I think it's interesting. I'm not sure who is the shadow self. It could be either of the Jessies actually in this one, but normally it's it's hidden. And I think one of the two Jessies is that shadow self. I don't know which one, because normally it's obvious, but it's also, I mean, it plays out in dreams. And I think there's a very dreamlike quality to this, this film. The conversations make no, no sense because basically he's having a conversation with himself and he's having a conversation about things he's read or seen. So whether it's a movie, whether it's a book that he's read, whether it's a conversation he's had with somebody else, the conversations make no sense because it's him talking to him. So it's all really quite interesting when you start to pick out those little things, those clues that this is actually entirely playing out in a suicidal janitor's mind. And my theory actually is he's actually freezing to death at the time. So he's hallucinating because obviously he does freeze to, again, spoilers, freeze to death (laughs) in the snow in the end whilst being eaten by a maggoty pig. I don't know, but that kind of thing. I think it points towards schizophrenia as well. What's That's a Kobe. You got all that, didn't you? I did it on the first watch. Yeah, the first fine. Yeah. Well, there's also a clue this about is the thing that annoys. <laughs> Can't believe it took you five or six watches to get that, Nicola. I mean, come on. I tell you, no, I got, I picked up on some of it on the first watch, but and even things like uh, obviously the the Pauline Kale bit, which is weird. And you see the book appear on the in the shelf. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. That bit, it's quoting "Woman on the Verge," which is of course a film entirely about schizophrenia. So again, is it pointing towards he's he's seen his parents' mental state? Yeah die of, well, certainly his his father has dementia. He thinks he's got something wrong with him as well, but he's too insular. He hasn't, he's too lonely to discuss it. So he's kind of playing it all out in his mind. That's my theory anyway. (laughs) What were we going to say, Helen? I mean, this this is all like great and fine and and it does make sense, but you've watched it six times, you've read the book and you've got kind of like a lot more experience. And I'm not against films that challenge you or push you or make you think differently or open to interpretation. But this just feels deliberately like if you don't know all this stuff, you're not in the club, we're not going to let you in. And I think there's a danger of like having too much stuff that is completely closed and you need all of that insider knowledge to get any enjoyment. And then having things that you can interpret and you you can get through a sense of that. And it was only because I'd read the synopsis of the book, I'd seen it twice and I'd read like loads of reviews that I was like, oh, maybe, okay, I can kind of see that they might not be real people, they could be the same people, but it was only through all of that. And I'm like, I can't be bothered with that, I'm afraid. You've got to give a little bit more than that, I think. And He's done that before in different things and the other films are just so much more accessible even though they are weird and they're out there and they're not like linear narratives. Yeah, I think you're dead right, Helen. I'd agree with you in terms of, you know, I love a puzzle box film, whether it's, you know, David Lynch. I was listening to your recent Memento episode and those sort of things, they draw you in and they they give you a little bit of crumbs. They don't give you everything, but they draw you in and, you know, they keep you engaged. Yes, we might be showing our hand for later on, but they, <laughs> they, 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 they keep you, you want to find out more and you're asking yourselves questions. Whereas I think definitely two of us, maybe even three of us were kind of concentrating on, can I stay with this movie right to the end? And that's why I think, you know, some of the, the structural choices and some of the, the staging definitely 
left something to be to be desired on that. And he, like some like and there's the odd movie I've gone through and I've kind of struggled with it. And I said, but I've been intrigued to go back and find out more about it. And I did find you know did read a little bit after my viewing of it. And sometimes with movies that would intrigue me to go right. Maybe I should go back and watch it again with that extra knowledge. <laughs> But, but not this get time. Get me watching this again, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> again, showing your hand to repeat viewing score. Possibly. Yeah, I think I, I was in between, I think in between Helen and John and, and Nicola, I, I quite enjoyed it. I Again, I think Jesse Clements, super engaging character. All of them. Jesse, the, I, I thought it was going to be a four-hander for the main part. Apart from them, you had the kind of interjections going back to the janitor who is Jesse Clemens' character in, you know, a later or a different life or whatever. But essentially, it was always like a, a bit of a forehander. And you know, those four around a, din- a dinner table is great. And I think it's things like that which really kind of pull you in, in pull, pull me into the the familial kind of conversations have around the table, Jesse Plemons being annoyed by his mum, all these kind of scenes I've, you know, I've seen played out around dinner tables that I've been involved in. That, that kind of thing really pulled me in. But that kind of sides towards the normality of, you know, normal side of film taking, of filmmaking or, or, or watching films. And it wasn't only until it was at the point where they go from the dining table and then they go into the lounge and suddenly Tony Collette's character couldn't hear so well. It's like, hold on, have I missed something? I wasn't sure what's going on here. And, and also, they, their clothes change as well. Well, this is, this is I just, I just wasn't, you just don't pay attention to that. But when I've gone and reviewed some scenes and there are some scenes where, you know, Jesse Buckley's character, her clothes change within frames and you're like, oh, okay, so I do need to pay attention here a bit more. So I will go back, you know, show my hand to repeat viewing score. I need to watch it again, knowing that, there are subtle things, but then also I did pick up on what I think are the more subtle things like the the Oklahoma thread running throughout the, the film. Pop, I didn't know the songs, so I didn't know the, the context of the last dance number, which kind of makes more sense, but also I still think, come on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I I quite enjoyed it just as a, as a curio. I don't know, in the show notes, I talked about the film within the film bit. <laughs> which really had me confused. I did generally think what was happening. Directed by here? Robert Robert Zemeckis. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, that was something the editor just put in as a temp, and then Kaufman found it very funny and contacted Robert Zemeckis. He said, "Yeah, fine." So it's not it's not a dig at Robert Zemeckis. Oh, no, I don't think all, it was. But it is a bit weird because <laughs> it's a terrible film as well. Because see, it said the dialogue's very stilted and. <laughs> That's it. She turns around, everyone applauds, and then she gets fired. In the last yeah. <laughs> so what? What is this we're doing? What's going on here? But yeah, I think it's it's generally kind of engaging in a way. You have to be off the right mindset. I didn't know where this film was going at all when it started, so I just thought it was going to be like a stand and meet the parents kind of film, but on, with a dark edge because Jesse Plemons doesn't do light-hearted films really, or or TV shows. So I thought there's going to be something about that. Uh, Jesse Buckley. Doesn't necessarily do lighthearted stuff as well, so yeah, I really liked David Thewlis in this. I was I always like his voice. I really like his voice and how he sounds and things. He's got a really good like gruffy voice. Did he try to be American in this? I don't think he ever does. It no, he didn't. He, he was he was his usual uh, yeah. wonderful self as yeah. he's been since me since Naked. It's also weird that 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 whole scene they don't make eye contact with Jesse Plemons at all. Because I w- I've watched it actually this time because I, I thought this can't be true, but he, they don't. And th- there's all sorts of just little quirks in that. I, I, f- I have to say, I find that scene hilarious. The dinner um, scene. I think we've all been there, you know, the meet the parents awkward th- scene. But it's tinged with almost some horror tropes. There's, there's actually, I don't know if it's deliberate or not. Well, the dog was quite freaky. 
the dog is very freaky and then there's the, the scratches on the door and the basement. You never go in the basement. It's a horror, horror movie trope, you know. Maggoty pigs as well. That's kind of a... Maggoty pigs. an Ariaster type thing. But also the bedroom is almost psycho-like as well. So I just picked up a few psycho vibes coming from, from the sort oh, of big, design. Big time. I think that was, that, that for me, if I was to say what was the part of the film that I, I enjoyed most, it was the arrival to the house... Like even the, the fact that, you know, the parents weren't coming down. For a while. There was a sense of unease that don't go downstairs to the basement and all those things that you've mentioned. Well, it's even not, not going straight into the house when you arrive. Let's go for a walk. Even though uh, someone yeah, waving at you, like, what? Yeah, yeah. Something's sure. going on here. And she asked about the lamb. They're, they're cheap. And she's like, what's going to happen to them? Well, they're dead. It's, it's cold. It's frozen. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm> like, okay. <laughs> Dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And at the initial exchange around the, the table, like it was like it did come to life. Like there are four brilliant actors. I love all four actors. So it was great to see them in that form. And then he wasted them. <laughs> I think the, the car journeys are yeah. Oh, I, I found them quite unbearable. Which is probably the point. Almost, so, well, in, in, unbearable yeah. in a stressful way, or unbearable like I, I don't want this is I don't like this. Yeah, I, just, what do you mean I don't like this. Sorry. I didn't like the yeah. the windscreen wipers. I didn't like how boring it was. But I guess maybe that is a car journey. But I well, so that's I what I mean. So you, you found unbearably boring, not unbearably like tense or no. stressful. I just found it really okay. boring. I was like, come on. Apparently, oh, wow. I found that. I mean, it's almost like chamber theatre that for that first car journey. And apparently, he did it in twenty five minute takes. So he he just said go. And they just did it 25 minutes. Obviously, he didn't use 25 minutes takes. He, he cut them. But but he kind of, again, you need brilliant actors to do that. And particularly theatre actors to do that. Because quite weird for film. <laughs> just go, go. And they go on for 25 minutes. So I think they were in their little bubble. And it, I think they are boring. And, but I think that is the point. But that rendition of Bone Dog is astonishing. And he, she also breaks the fourth wall slightly on that one. She looks at the camera at the very end, which I'm not sure... If that was deliberate or not, but um, I'm that, sure it would. That I'm felt sure very, pa- yeah, yeah. That felt very powerful to me. It was kind of okay. This is. Ooh, I'm not sure what's going on here. <laughs> I think the the conceit of her that she sets up at the start is like, I need to get back tonight because X Y Z, and her rising stress levels when it became apparent that either Jesse Clements wasn't listening to her, please to leave, and there's this thing about the snow chains. It'll be fine because the snow chains. But you look at the sign, when it's saying, if you want to go, let's just go now, mate snow chains or no snow chains this is like in the dark you don't know what's going to come across and then it takes the it takes the route to the high school down a dodgy and that found, I didn't find it boring I found I found it unbearably stressful so that's why I was, I was asking for clarifications from Helen there because I thought I don't like this I don't like where this is going I don't like the the tense the, the edge it has me on at the moment I was the same and also stopping for cold drinks in the middle of his nose what are you doing and there's three people <laughs> three people working there at this place which maybe one person comes an hour I thought that was excessive is there anything else I want to say guys before we head to the scores I don't know if you've seen it but like Bo is Afraid no spoilers is a, almost a companion piece to this oh is it sort of I I've been wondering because yeah. there has been mixed reviews of it's that just, isn't there? and it's also three hours <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's some like similarities even with the the kind of like there's some animation thrown in there and that sense of like needing to get somewhere but everyone around you preventing that and dare I say it very overindulgent so be, be afraid 
but was afraid. This weekend is the start of like the best run of cinema since the pre-pandemic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, because yeah. this you got this weekend you got either got it's me and Margaret, which I've seen, which is great. You've got Fast X, you've got Bo's Afraid, and then you've got all then it just goes through Little Mermaid. Rips, rips through this. Yeah, yeah it's, it's just like week after week after week, it's like my god. And we've got um, Guardians of the Galaxy as well, see. Well that was last that was last week for me. That was last week, yeah. Yeah. So it's just oh Well I said Oppenheimer <laughs> Barbie on the same weekend. Oh yes. Oh my god. You want something? <laughs> No, I think I think it starts. It starts last week. Anyway. I'm Sam Clements, host of the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival, another podcast in the Stripped Media family, a podcast that celebrates movies under 90 minutes long. Each episode, I'm joined by a special guest who selects a movie to join our prestigious lineup. Past guests have included fellow Stripped Media family members Martin and Sam from Song by Song, and Kobe from Flixwatcher, and Dave from The Wire Stripped. Search for us now on the app you're currently listening to this podcast, or join us at 90minfilmfest.com. Welcome to the Flixwatcher scores. All of our scores are out of five. You can have decimal places if you wish. And we will start with you, please, Nicola, with your recommendability. So whenever anyone mentions a Kaufman film, I always go, do you like Charlie Kaufman before I then recommend <laughs> things? So but I would say generally a three for me, recommendability. When you ask people if they know Charlie Kaufman, do you know what that means? Do they, how do they respond? Because I don't think people would... It's kind of an innocuous name to people who don't know, but at the same time, if you do know, you'd be like, oh, mm, or yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, most of my friends are fairly cine literate. Actually, our mutual friend Heather, John and I, has the fabulous Heather Wells. She said the other day, should I watch uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? To which I went, you haven't seen it? And then I said, do you, do you like Charlie Kaufman? And then recommended it and she loved it. So, but yeah, most people I think know a little bit about the genre that is Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> I think they probably know the films more than him as a as a person. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that him as a writer perceives him as a director and quite often writers don't get like front billing uh, in a yeah. way. Yeah, and they should. And, and obviously the Writers Guild are on strike at the moment and they, they do deserve a lot more credit than they get at the moment because frankly the films would not exist without them. Absolutely. John, recommendability score. I will give it a 1.01. That much, John? I think that's the first time we've ever had a 1.01 ever. I think it might be. Any elaboration on that? I was trying to remember, I think of who I would recommend it to. And Nicola was the only one I could think of. (laughs) So if someone said they liked Charlie Kaufman films and hadn't seen it, would you not recommend this to them? Uh, If they like his director work, Mm. yes, I would. I don't know anybody that does. To be honest, and that maybe I have a very shallow based uh, sure. group of friends other than Nicola. Yeah, our mutual friend Heather said she liked it, not loved it. So, but yeah. Helen. Yeah, I would really struggle to recommend this to people, even if they were like, yeah, I loved Eternal Sunshine. Like, yeah, I love being John Malkovich. Yeah, I loved Adaptation. I really love Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, which not a lot of people do love. I would say no, still. I would really, I really find it difficult to, which is a shame because everyone involved I'm a big fan of and there are like the dinner table stuff is really interesting and there's some really interesting bits in it. 
but it's just too unfocused and overindulgent and I don't know about Alcohoma and if you need to know about that to get that then it's just it's just not accessible in a way that's enjoyable so I'm going to give it a two one it gets two for the two Jesses because I really like them what not even sports scores with Thewlis and Tony Clash they're not in it much they're not in it much I just anyway yeah the Jesses kind of like make it more than a one for me I'm going to go for three. I think I'd recommend it with caveats, with big caveats and say, look, it's good. I like the way I didn't know as Charlie Coffin before watching it. I like the way I didn't know where it's going until like things were like out of place and strange and me thinking, okay, I need to lean in a bit more. So I think maybe I was a bit more primed. Maybe I was in the right kind of zone for it. Had someone said it was the, it was the guy that wrote Don Malkovich, I would have been, I think I would have been in different headspaces. Okay, okay let's see how weird this is going to get. And I didn't think it got weird. I think it just got... No, it got weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there's a bit with a naked guy walking down the hall behind an animated pig. So that's kind of that's perfect, perfectly normal. That was weird. That's yeah. yeah that's so definitely weird. Three repeat viewing score, Nicola. <laughs> well, I think if you can get through it once and not hate it, I would give it a four point five because I think it does reward you every Six time. Times. You- Six times. <laughs> yeah. But to be honest, I see a lot of movies multiple times and it, it's nowhere near my record, which would be Blade Runner, which I've probably seen over a hundred times. What? Yeah, I know. I can quote it. Don't start me. But yeah, I mean, I see movies a lot and I like movies that are, that give me lots of little clues and, and I can spot, you know, they've got detail. It, there's density to them. And this is one of those that I think if you get through it once, I actually almost instantly watched it again after the first time of watching it. And actually that, that was a challenging day because I think I saw Tenet on the same day as well, which, you know, I had a very boiled brain at that point. Um, so but, um, what, what Helen and, and John are talking about, in terms of this as, a, as an annoying film, that's that Tenet for me is that. Yeah. Like, I, I'd watch I, fa- I found again. this easier to understand. <laughs> yeah. So John, to repeat being score. Going to keep along the 1984 theme and I'm going to go 1.01 for repeat viewing. I will definitely never watch <laughs> this again. And I don't think Helen's going to watch it again. Helen. Well, I've watched it twice now. I got a bit more the second time round, but I didn't enjoy it. So feels so long as well it feels really really long it feels like two three hours not just over two hours it's about two hours 14 minutes yeah it feels longer than that so i'll give it two one for each time i've watched it yeah i'll watch it again for reference i'll probably do some digging and go into youtube for breakdowns maybe before i rewatch it but i don't think i will go back to that well many more times so i'll go for two same as helen small screen score Nicola? I mean, this is one, I don't think it would necessarily benefit from a big screen, aside from the fact you would be entirely focused in on it and you would pay attention, you would spot all those little things. But so, but I don't think it's one you necessarily would need to see on a big screen. Of course, you can't because it's only on Netflix. But So, <laughs> so I'll give it a 3.5. Okay. John? I'm going to surprise you now, Nicola, by outscoring you. I'm going to give it a 4.04. <laughs> Because, yeah, I don't think it would, it's obviously only uh, on Netflix anyway. And I don't think you would, you've lost anything by watching it on a TV. It's obviously presented in, I think that's the Academy ratio. It's it seems like presented it's in as like so, elongated, more elongated than the Academy, but yeah. There, thereabouts, yeah. So, so it's almost perfectly designed for even an old television. So, <laughs> Helen. So how do we have not been in that weird 
period of post-pandemic, but nothing was really happening. And this had had a cinema release, then I probably would have gone to see this because of the people involved. I would have fucking hated the experience. <laughs> and it would have been really, really irritating. But it, it might have, I might have had a different experience because the temptation to piss about on my phone wouldn't have been there. So yeah, had it had a normal release, I probably would have gone to see it. That said, if it's shown at the Prince Charles, I'm not going to see it. So um, yeah, I'm going to give it a four <laughs> for small screen. I'm going to give it a five. Whether I would have seen it at the cinema or not, doesn't matter. But I think it's absolutely fine for the iPad and big screen TV screen combination that I had watching it. Engagement score, Nicola. I mean, I was engaged, but I do think it, it does test people generally, particularly that car sequence. So I'll give it a three, I think, in terms of engagement. John. Yeah, so Helen said that she'd really struggled with this and time seemed to stand still. And I think I set a record for the amount of times I checked how long was left in the film. And I think I might have even turned it, if we weren't doing this podcast... I think I would have turned it off after 15 minutes just before that car oh, journey. Oh, wow, that soon? Yeah, it, that, that car journey really made me struggle. And just even the setup of that, that car journey, I, Helen mentioned the wipers. There was also the way it was, it was very theatrical, the way it was set, because even the landscapes at the back, it didn't look like it was moving at one place. It was just like, are they just sitting in a the car? They obviously are in a studio doing that, but it, it looked that way at times. Never mind the conversations that were going on, so... Yeah, no, I, I really I really did struggle throughout. Again, you know, that little part in the middle did meet my attention, but then it went off the rails. So we're back to 1984. It's 1.01. 1. Helen? There are two car sequences. There's one at the start, and then there's the one when they leave. And <laughs> I, I don't have a favourite out of them. Yeah, I really struggled with engagement for this. And I just... I think it's it's really, really hard to get an understanding of who the people are and what they're about and what their feelings are. They just feel very deliberately closed and cold, which I think I do really enjoy character-focused films and hearing stories and getting to feel like I know the characters and there's just none of that with it. I think that more than the the car journey itself it's just more about how closed off they are so for engagement i'm going to give it a 1.5 and i'm going to go high i'm going to go for i'm going to go for almost like a four actually on this because i did like i said i didn't know where it's going didn't realize it's charlie kaufman before i pressed play i do remember coming out and have vague recollections of people talking about it, saying it's a bit weird but that wasn't in my head at all when i pressed when i pressed play but when i started to notice the edges being a bit fuzzier, I was like, okay, I need to understand, I need to make sure I'm paying attention here. But also the initial conceit of I'm thinking of ending things was like, okay, so what's what's happening in their life? Why is she still here, even though they haven't been long they're together long enough to even want to take this car journey? So that that did actually make me lean in in itself. So I love how film divides people. It's this really interesting discussion that half is quite interested by half is like really put off by this journey. I, I was quite interested by the car journey. I thought it was I wanted to know why they were still doing going down this route. I wanted to know if she's going to get back in time to do her, her work or whatever it was. So I'm going to go for a four for engagement score. And that gives an overall score of 2.7563, which is lower than I thought was 
one of the lowest scores we've had in a while, unfortunately, Nicola. But it's a divisive film, it seems. You won't won't be surprised to learn that out of the the Kaufman we've had so far, it's the bottom third one. So B and John Malkovich got four point two zero. Adaptation got three point nine seven. So that that didn't do that high. I think maybe I can't remember what it was on that one. Maybe the repeat viewing was a bit lower. So yeah, a bit janky on it. Well. Nicola and John, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for choosing the film. Can you tell us where we can find you online? And we'll say goodbye to the listeners. Well, you can find me all over the place, frankly, but I on Twitter, I'm at DocNicola. I'm on LinkedIn as well. And if you Google me, you'll find some weird videos of me talking about all sorts of weird and wonderful technology and psychology stuff. So yeah, you'll find me all over the place. A bit like Charlie Kaufman <laughs> in this film. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> You'll find me on Twitter at Lofty SNDS. That's at Lofty Sounds on Twitter. And you'll find all my ramblings on music and movies there. Well, fantastic. Thank you very much again, guys. It's been a pleasure for me, at least, to talk about I'm thinking of many things. <laughs> but it's been fun hearing you guys dissenting. All right. Thank you very much. I'll see Thanks you soon. Thanks for coming on. Thanks a Bye. lot. Bye. Bye. Thanks for having us. Enjoyed this episode of Flix Watcher Podcast? Why not leave us a five-star review on iTunes? You can also follow us at Flix Watcher Pod on Twitter and we're at Flix Watcher on Instagram. Thanks as always to the mighty people for their mighty, mighty tunes and Rockwood Audio's editing skills. If you're looking to get your podcast edited as sweet as this, get in touch with Rockwood, R-O-K-K Wood Audio. Tell them Flix Watcher sent you. just heard a stripped media production.